You're listening to the Keep Going Podcast, where we keep going after the heart of God, because He's our only hope. I'm Nika Maples. Thank you for your patience as we move through this season of the Keep Going podcast. Several weeks ago, I announced to you that we were starting a new series called Hope Hunters, but I have decided to make that a special treat, an occasional sporadic interview that is interjected into the season of the Keep Going podcast because I want to showcase each person's story and not just churn them out every week. I want to give each person the time and the honor that they're due because it takes a lot of courage to share a story of hope hunting like these people are willing to do. Today, I'd like to introduce you to one of my dearest friends, Shelby. She is comfortable in a range of emotions and that is because she's experienced a range of emotions. No matter who it is, Shelby is a good friend to her friends. She is consistent even when I am inconsistent. And for that, I have to give her all kinds of applause. Our interview began with a question. Tell me about a time you felt hopeless. Please stop what you're doing and give your attention to my dear friend. She has a lot of wisdom to share. graduated high school in 2009 and 16 days before I was to go off to college I found out my parents were killed in a car accident um it was a Monday (laughs) and I had been dorm shopping with my twin sister and we were struggling because we were about to move away from each other she was staying and I was going just to Dallas um but it was a big change for us and It caused some tension in our relationship because I was like clinging to her, I think, and was like, why don't you want to be with me? And so she's like, let's go, let's go have a day together. So we did and we got, I just recently got rid of the shelf that we bought that day. I've had it forever. And um, we were just out shopping and we had both tried to call mom and dad because that morning, early that morning, Mom kissed me on the forehead and said, your dad and I are going to spend the day together. And they both worked really hard jobs and worked almost two jobs each to provide. And so for them to skip a day to spend time together was really unusual. So they chose to go to Windstar Casino, which is another thing that was extremely unusual. My parents didn't drink or gamble. And um, so we just kind of thought nothing of it. But they left and around, I think... Noon or so is when we called, and it just went straight to voicemail. And then we got home, and I remember Alicia was on the phone with her boyfriend at the time, and I could just hear panic in her voice, like, across the house. And so I just heard her saying, you know, tell me what's going on. Tell me what's going on. What do you know? Why aren't you telling me? And I was in the sunroom at the time on the computer, so I got up to go and figure out what was going on with her. And we basically kind of met in the kitchen and she was like, something happened to mom and dad. I don't know. I don't know anything else, but um, 
his parents and him are coming to get us and take us to Vanessa's, which is my older sister. And she was beside herself. It was like somehow she already knew or something. And I was like, okay, like we don't need to freak out. I was being the voice of reason. I was like, we don't need to freak out. We don't know anything. You know, let's just, let's just see how his parents are acting when they come to pick us up. And then we'll decide if we need to freak out. And I think those were my exact words. So they showed up and the expressions on their face kind of, uh, (laughs) kind of said it all, but at the same time, they didn't know every detail. So we got in the car and it was only to Keller from Bedford, but it felt like hours in the car and we were holding hands and crying and no one was saying a thing. (laughs) It was frustrating. But then finally, as we got closer, I think it was um, the dad that said, I don't have any details, but I know your parents were in a car accident. So I'm processing. Why the heck aren't we going to the hospital? Right? So then Mm -hmm. my internal dialogue takes over and I say, not both of them. I just kept saying not both of them. Because obviously we're not going to the hospital there has been a death. It just made sense, you know. So I said, not both. You wouldn't take both. And we pulled onto my sister's street. And just like the movies, <laughs> just police officer, state trooper cars, right in front of the house. And I think at that point, we kind of knew, like, confirmed that somebody had died so hand in hand we walked up the driveway and Vanessa greeted us at the door grabbed our shoulders looked us in the eyes and just said we're gonna be okay we're gonna be okay we're gonna be okay and I pushed her away and I said just tell us what happened so we walked through the the door into the living room and it's lined It's lined with people. Some I knew, some I didn't know. Officers and people they send to your house in a crisis. Like a whole team of grievers. I don't even know. But it was just, it was packed. And we sat down on her couch. And I can't remember. I said... I said both of them or something and she said both of them <sighs> and the first I think the first thing out of my mouth was what what, what are we going to do I'm supposed to go to school in two weeks and she's like we'll handle it we'll handle all of it and that night was a blur of hundreds <laughs> Hundreds of people coming to the house to see us and to love on us. And I don't remember feeling anything. I mean, people would try to have conversations and I just, I was still processing. 
I had just gotten this news. It felt so unreal. And we were waiting for family to kind of come in from out of town and stuff. So it was just really friends and church people that were there just to love on us, bring us stuff, you know, whatever. And then that night, everybody left. And then in walked my aunt and my grandma. And and then it was, it's kind of like it hit, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, and then we went straight into funeral planning and all of those horrible things. Um, and we stayed with my sister. I mean, because Alicia and I lived at the house at the time. And so all of a sudden, we are literally just uprooted completely. Right. None of our things are with us. I mean, toothbrush. It's just the small things you don't think about. So people had brought us stuff from the house while we stayed with Vanessa. And then I think it was like, that was a Monday. And then I think Wednesday is when we went to the funeral home and started planning their funeral. And that was just, you know, surreal as well. I'm interested in how you did that in the first days because it's hard for any person to go to college. Mm -hmm. What a huge shift in their lives. But for you to have two huge monumental shifts in your life, to have this situation with grief and loss, plus the standard grief and loss of a life stage change of going to college, how did you do that? And your sister um, mm-hmm. was not with you at college. Right. I mean, I knew that I was going to go to college because I didn't have anywhere else to go. You know, I lost my parents. I lost my house. I lost everything. And I could have lived with my sister, but I didn't want to. I wanted to go to college. And so I just looked at that as that's my new home and that's my new start. That's my new normal or whatever you want to call it. And we just worked to get me there. And so I went and I powered through that week and the next week because my parents knew that I was going to go to college and they were so proud of me for getting in because I'm mm-hmm. not a school person. And it was a really big deal to them and to me that I got into this school and my dad actually went to orientation with me, just him, and those are like the last memories I have of him and I just thought I have to keep going they knew that's where I was going and I felt like for some reason I needed to honor that I needed to honor I needed to I don't know I needed to honor everything they did to get me there and so I went you your family were Christians Mm -hmm. you're you're a Christian and you were very involved in a church Mm -hmm. um well how did the church respond when with such a tragedy mm-hmm. and you're moving to another city I understand so did you get involved in another church or was it hard to go to church mm-hmm. some people respond that way I'm just interested in the support system you had sure um yes I was very involved with my church my dad was the deacon my mom was the treasurer we were kind of your typical Christian family we were there every time the doors opened um and the support from the church was was great. My pastor at the time and his wife were there when we walked into the house for the first time to see all the people lining the walls. 
I didn't have a super close relationship with him, but they knew my parents really well. Um, obviously, my dad, like I said, he was a deacon, so he was on staff or whatever with mm-hmm. the pastor. But there wasn't much that anybody could do. You know, I was leaving to go to college, so of course they wanted me to come back on the weekends and keep going to church and things, but I needed to kind of start this new chapter of my life. And I'd love to say that I hit my knees and drew really close to the Lord, but that's not my story. And I did a 180. (laughs) I went from one of the most spiritually wise in the youth group. You know, I led a bunch of things. I remember part of my story is that just a few months, so I was baptized on Easter the same year that my parents died. So just a few months later after I had kind of surrendered everything is when this happened. And that was the filter in which I have viewed and viewed my journey with Christ for a really long time is I gave you everything. (laughs) Thanks in return. And I know, I know that's not true. I know that's not how he works. But in my 18-year-old head and heart, who was beyond devastated, I was just kind of like done. So I didn't want to get involved in a church. And I didn't want to talk to him. I didn't want to pray. Praying was weird. Because all of a sudden, I'm praying to this God that could be standing next to my parents. And I know that's the weirdest thing to say out loud, but I kind of felt like like I wanted him to hand him the phone. Is that the stupidest thing ever? But of course you felt that way. That he had access to them and you didn't. Absolutely. I've never said that out loud before. So what prayer life I did have was really weird. (laughs) And it ended with tell mom and dad I say hey. But I was at a Christian college. I was forced to go to chapel three times a week. I was in Bible classes. I was surrounded by devotional groups of all different kinds. So I look back and I think, why? Like, why Why Dallas Baptist? Why a Christian college? Why did I get in? Why 16 days after the accident? But I think the Lord knew that I needed to be surrounded by that. Because he wouldn't have lost me, but I would have taken a heck of a journey. Um, so even when I didn't want to hear his name, It was plastered everywhere. When I didn't want to pray or read my Bible, I had to, you know, I had to open my Bible to do homework or study or memorize a verse or whatever. And I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful. Um, So a support system is interesting because I look back and I didn't have a church. I didn't go to a church. I attended every now and then because I was, I had a scholarship that had requirements that I needed to follow through and but it was kind of 
me, myself, and I in that lonely dorm room. Um, but I vividly remember the day that everything changed. The day he finally, the day I finally started listening. Um, Tell me about that. I struggled with, I mean, depression, duh, like everyone, shocking, but I struggled with a lot of health stuff. I got like mono. I couldn't get out of bed. I mean, my grief physically, it just annihilated me. Um, and are, are we still timeline wise in the first year? In the first year. Fresh, freshman year. Yeah, freshman year. So I couldn't get out of bed. I was miserable. I wasn't sleeping because I didn't want to wake up and remember it again. So I would stay awake for days at a time because if I went to sleep, everything was okay. And then I'd wake up and I would have to do it again. We agree. Yeah. And it was, it was awful. And the nights were so, so dark. But I, I knew, I knew the answer. I knew he was the answer. I knew it in my heart. I knew it in the Awana stuff that I learned. I knew it in my salvation. I knew it in every Bible verse someone threw at me in a stupid grief book or whatever. But my head was just spiraling. And then there was one day that I just realized I'm not going to get through this if I don't hit my knees. And I think I challenged him. I'm trying to remember this series of events that led to what happened in that room but I think I said, you know, fine, talk to me. And I grabbed my Bible and I opened it. And I still have the note cards, tear stained, hot, neon colored note cards of the verses that he led me to. And one of them was, and I can't remember the reference, but it was, I will lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, O Lord, are my safety. I had never seen that verse a day in my life. And I needed him. Like I needed oxygen. Um, and that was like my first like tangible like experience with him. And I'm not going to say it just got better after that, but I trusted him a little bit more. I realized that there was a communication process happening that he didn't just like leave me to just suffer. But it was, it was tough. During that time, you met your husband, yes. and you guys had, <laughs> <laughs> and you guys had a point of connection mm-hmm. very early on because you both had experienced loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank goodness. So I loved Jesus, and we were working this thing out, but I was not making the best decisions in the process. I was lonely. I was very lonely. And I had a lot of different weird relationships and unhealthy relationships with guys. And I knew that if I didn't stop that, that this husband I had been praying for was not going to get a chance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I had also been struggling with some alcohol. I'm not going to say addiction, but just stupid, careless stuff. And I told God, you can have the boys, but you can't have the alcohol. I said it straight up. 
And then I was like, no, you're right. You need both. So eventually I was like, fine, take them all. Like, I don't want them. And I got three, three or four journal entries that I started praying hard for my husband because I, I needed him. Oh my gosh, I needed him. I needed a family and I needed someone to love me so deeply. (laughs) And four journal entries later, that's it. I gave it to him as a gift recently, like, I don't know, a couple years ago. And I was like, this is literally four entries is all I got. And then I met you. (laughs) Um, So he so answered that prayer. But yes, so I met Matthew Toller in 2000. And well, I met him long before DBU came into place. But our mutual youth pastor had contacted me um, and said, hey, do you remember Matt Toller? He's uh, coming to DBU and I just want you to make him feel welcome. (laughs) And as my youth pastor said on the day he married us, and boy, did she, because we dated for, I think we were friends from like October to December. Of your sophomore year? This is sophomore year. Mm-hmm. Um, October to December, and then New Year's Day, we were boyfriend-girlfriend. February was an I love you, and May was a will you marry me, and August was an I do. So it was super, super quick. <laughs> Best best gift I've ever, besides my daughter, best gift I've ever gotten. He's amazing. But he lost his dad when he was young. So there is a deep bond that we have. We're on Father's Day. We just kind of look at each other like, you good? And then we just move on. So he gets it. He gets the dark, dark times and he gets the relationship with Christ and this trust struggle and the anxiety that we live with thinking like, who's next? Um, it's not anything that anybody wants to live with, but the fact that we both have that struggle and that story and that testimony, it makes, I think, our marriage kind of the most beautiful thing ever. <laughs> I'm biased, but... So, um, well, I love the fact that the Lord gave you someone that could share that with you. Me too. He didn't have to. You would have been blessed with someone else. I mean, but his design for you was somebody who could know you. Mm -hmm. And that part of you had to be known. But I want, I'm curious if you you said on Father's Day, you're kind of like, all right, moving on. So y'all, I've heard you say before that's not a favorite day to go to church or anything like that because you just kind of don't want to be surrounded by it. So that leads me into asking like, are there things that people could avoid doing or saying to someone who's experienced loss? Maybe you'll talk about immediately after, are there some things that are unhelpful that you just, you know, I just don't need to hear that in the first few months or the first year. And in then now, so many years later, 10 years later, um, People may still be being insensitive. Mm -hmm. Tell us how we can do better to address grief and loss. I want to have that answer because I'm asked that a lot. You know, someone who's lost a lot, surely you can give us some pointers. And I've got some, but I wish I had more. Um... At first, 
don't say anything. Just be there. Just be there. Because I can't remember a single thing anybody said. I mean, I can't. And I heard a lot. I know I talked to, like I said, hundreds of people and thousands of people at the funeral. And I can't remember a single thing that someone said. So if you're waiting and you have something really important to say, don't say it anytime within the first, like, especially the first week. But I would even say a month, two months. That's a really important thing for me to hear. Yeah. Because as somebody who wants to find the perfect phrase, as a writer, I'm just interested in words. Mm -hmm. And so I want to find the perfect phrase and to find out that someone's not interested in the perfect phrase. They're really more interested in presence. Yeah. Is important for me to hear. Because I know so many people have really good intentions on what they have planned to say. And honestly, you're just shaking your head and nodding and saying thank you so many times that you just, you're not even receiving it. You're receiving the negative. I will say I can remember everything negative. Okay, then instead of telling us maybe what we can do. What not to do. Is there something that, I mean, of course there are probably some outliers that really Mm -hmm. say the crazy things that, you know, you can Mm -hmm. tell me about those too. But like, what are really common things that you're done done hearing Mm -hmm. that? So I was 18. Um, Thankfully I was 18 because I didn't have to go to anybody's guardianship, nothing, you know had to be done about that but I I grew up right I didn't need anybody I didn't have anybody but one thing I kept hearing is stuff like I'll be your mom or I'll be your new mom or I'll be that is like the biggest (sighs) whoops go ahead sorry Um, just yeah just keep going (laughs) That so is, when people off, offered, uh, start the start of that part again, mm-hmm. you kept hearing people. People say. Because you were 18, you didn't need guardianship. No, I didn't. Um, but people would be like, I can be. It was so weird. And no one really meant it like, I'll be your mom. But it was kind of like, it was supposed to be comforting. Like, I'll be your new mom. Like, you can talk to me like your mom. Or it was weird. And anything that someone said basically that they could take her place was like, "Uh uh-uh, no, you will never take her place. Don't even say that you're anything similar to her because you're nothing like her. And that still is present. Um, I don't have that as much, but now that I have a daughter and I deal with the grandma thing, it's hard. Like no one will ever replace my parents. Um, So when people say stuff like that, the other one would be, this is God's plan. Mm. (laughs) You know, I know I'm not alone in that because that makes me think of God as not my favorite person. (laughs) And all he's trying to do in that moment is to comfort us. And we're already like fisticuffs with him over our own stuff so when you say that that's God's plan it's his will any of that that is it's it's offensive because it 
sure, it's the way things went down. That was his plan and for my life. But that's not helpful. To know that God's plan was to make every day that I live on this earth without them a little bit painful in some way. That's not fair. That's not fair at all. Someone also said um, their work here on earth was done. So he took them. You know, they fulfilled what they were supposed to do. They were so good at what they did. Like they just, their time here was done. And I have a lot to say about that because their time here was not done. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was not done. On this side of heaven, it was not done. I needed them to see me get married and have babies. And I wanted to watch them grow old. So those typical things. But I would say anything that someone says I'm like them. I can be like them. Let me fill their shoes. Nah. Mm-hmm. No. I can't think of one person that I've actually followed on that. Like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. No. Like, I'll be, you know, the grandma, the fake grandma or whatever to your kid. No, you certainly will not. She has a grandma. That is all we need. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I grew up with one grandma and it was it was fine. And she'll do the same. But just like I don't need people to fill those positions, my daughter doesn't need those positions filled either. And it has been 10 years. Things are really different now. Now that I'm a mom and I've I kind of re-grieved a lot of things and I've reheard stupid things. So I'm adding more to my list, but in a nutshell, yeah, just be there. So I'll come back and just say on the positive note, the people that still text on August 3rd, or remember their birthdays. That list is so short. It is so short. Um, But it means the world because you feel like they've been forgotten and that it hurts. Like how, how were they forgotten? Because I think about them every single day and I should be a reminder of who they were and how have you forgotten? Or I'll get a text like five days later. Oh, I'm sorry. I was busy. (laughs) I can't. (laughs) I'm sorry you were busy. But my world stopped again August 3rd so that I had to remember all those things. But just remembering remembering who they were. Talking great about those people. Mm -hmm. Talking about them. So I think a lot of people think... It will be best if I just never talk about the person who's mm-hmm. no no longer here on this earth. But to you, they're always here yeah. because you're always in your mind. Um, so it's not a helpful thing to do. The, the instinctive thing is to not talk about it. Mm-hmm. That's not helpful. You'd prefer that people bring up mm-hmm. happy memories or... yeah. I'm a little bit on both sides of this because talking about them is really hard. Me to be even doing this right now is really outside of my comfort zone. I, I'm i getting to a place where I can talk about them more and I will have to get to a place because I want my daughter to know who they were, who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of how I'm going to receive it. I don't know. But when people say, I just didn't want to bring it up. I didn't want to remind you. <laughs> That's the best one. I don't want to I didn't want to remind you. No, I think about it all day. I think about it at least several times a day. I think about them all the time. You're not just going to bring them up and be like, "Oh yeah. 
thin. <laughs> I mean, that's the most ridiculous thing <laughs> I've ever heard. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I have never thought about how ridiculous that sounds. Right? It's ridiculous. You know what? I actually forgot. No, it's really frustrating. <laughs> oh my goodness. But I miss what I'm I'm seeing now is I don't have these questions that I get to ask them. You know, what was it like when I was born? You know, what was I like as a kid? And I get to see my mother in law and my husband and my daughter have these conversations. I'm like, man, I really wish someone was here to, if it was an aunt or a grandma, someone to come in and contribute to this conversation. Because I don't know. I don't have those stories. I don't remember what I dressed up as when I was two, you know. So those things. I want to know those things, but I, but I don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I did do this thing with my grandma recently where we recorded. It was like three hours. And I just, we asked, I think it was like 60 different questions. Because when she passes, she has all the answers. She knows those stories and the time I had the chicken pox, you know, all those things. I don't want to forget that. I want as much as I can have to tell my kids mm-hmm. to let all that live on. Um, so talk about them. Talk about Even them. when it hurts. Even if I start crying. Talk about talk them. Talk about them. Take your I'm so thankful to my friend Shelby for her willingness to be honest about the different aspects of her grief. My biggest takeaway from that section of the interview was you can talk about the people who are no longer here with us on earth. You're not going to quote unquote remind someone in an untimely way that they've lost someone as if she could have forgotten. I mean, that that just totally blew me away because a lot of times that's my excuse is, oh, I didn't want to remind you. They're always thinking about ones they've lost. Well, there's more to this interview and it gets really interesting, really good. It's coming soon, so keep your eyes and ears open for the next podcast episode featuring Shelby. And until then, keep going. Wisdom in the secret heart